This story is going to contain explicit language related to race. So this is your heads up. Hi, I'm Steve Walsh. I'm a reporter in San Diego. This story is from the 1970s. It's about a group of African-American Marines who attack a meeting of the Ku Klux Klan happening on board Camp Pendleton, the big West Coast home of the Marine Corps. At least they thought it was a Klan meeting. They were trying to strike a blow against the open hate and racism they were seeing around them. Only problem, they got the wrong room. This is Free the Pendleton 14. The Ku Klux Klan was operating openly at Camp Pendleton in Southern California, just north of San Diego. I was pretty surprised when I first came across the story about a year ago in an old newsletter put out by the National Lawyers Guild Military Law Task Force. The story talks about seeing Klan literature, posters, and patches around the base, white Marines openly identifying themselves as Klan members. The story goes on to talk about cross burnings and black Marines being chased and attacked. I'm not from Southern California, and I don't really associate the KKK with Southern California. But I've researched the story, and it definitely happened. In fact, it was national news when it finally came out that a chapter of the Ku Klux Klan was operating on a Marine base. I've been trying to find people involved. This is 40 years ago, though, and I've done the best I could. Some people have died. Other people don't want to talk. One key figure is still very public. It's white people who are the greatest victims of violence in America in terms of cross-racial crime, and you all know that. Nobody talks about that. That's the aging voice of David Duke. He's the former Grand Dragon of the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. Sick, deluded, propagandized white Anti-white! He's speaking in 2017 at a gathering of white supremacists, white nationalists, Nazis, and Klansmen who converged on Charlottesville, Virginia for the Unite the Right rally. David Duke has been around since the 1970s. Back then, he was selling himself as the new face of the KKK. Duke is no longer part of the Ku Klux Klan, though his basic message never seems to change. After the violence in Charlottesville, which included a young woman, Heather Heyer, being killed when she was run over by one white supremacist, President Trump famously tried to defend them, talking about fine people on both sides. The entire angry episode feels like something that keeps rising to the surface without ever going away. As much attention as these stories get at the time, they seem to fade from memory, like this 40-year-old story from the 1970s when the KKK was operating openly on a marine base. In 1976, while the Corps is already struggling with the underlying racism in its ranks, the Marines don't take the threat of the Klan seriously. No one died, but lives were damaged. Innocent people were seriously hurt. The resulting chaos provided a national platform that helped bring new life to the Klan and its divisive message.
I was able to find one of the African-American Marines who was accused in this case. Ricky McGilvery is now in his 60s. He's a Pentecostal minister from outside Dallas, Texas. His father was also a Dallas minister. As a kid, Ricky thought he'd probably take over his dad's church. I actually found him through his church website. One of my first questions was, why'd he join the Marine Corps? Probably 15 or 16 years old, uh, I was making a decision on what I'm going to do about health care. Believe it or not, I was thinking about health care 1973 uh, because I knew I wasn't going to retire from no job because my dad was self-employed. thought about, you know, spending the rest of my career in the military. But see how that worked out, but that's why. In 1973, with the permission of his parents, Ricky McGilvery dropped out of high school to join the Marines. He was 17 years old. These were the last days of Vietnam. The draft was ending, and recruiting pressure was enormous for the Marine Corps. McGilvery doesn't have a high school diploma, but that's not unusual for Marines even in the years after Vietnam. I knew the war was ending. Uh, I, I paid attention to news. Uh, I knew they were having a drawdown. I knew, I knew the I mean, I was going to serve my country, but I knew Vietnam, which was a bad war, uh, even at the age of uh, 15, 16, was a tough war, it was a bad war. So uh, I, thought, I thought it was going to end pretty soon. McGilvery came right to Camp Pendleton after boot camp. Pendleton is one of the three largest bases for the Marine Corps. With more than 30,000 Marines at the time, it's the largest base on the West Coast. Pendleton hugs 17 miles of Pacific coastline north of San Diego. It takes in roughly 120,000 acres of dusty hills and canyons. The base was a staging ground for Vietnam, a clearinghouse for Marines on their way to and from the war. Even in the years after the war ended, you still had a number of grizzled veterans finishing out their time. McGilvery says he found Pendleton to be a lot different than boot camp. Pendleton was a little different, and, and let me tell you why different, because they, they mixed us all together. And so you're talking about 17, 18, 19-year-olds, fresh out of boot camp, and you're talking about 24 and up guys who have been salty Marines who have been in Vietnam. They were drug addicts, honestly. They were drug addicts. And that's putting it mildly. Uh, because a lot, of them, a lot of those guys was pretty messed up. I'm being honest with you. They, was, they, had, they had witnessed things in the war that even now and then they would sit us down and talk about Vietnam and what they had to do, the killings that they had to uh, be partakers of. Uh, and so that was the thing about it. Uh, I think that was the most serious part of being in the camp at that time with those type of men who had, and, and I'm saying men because they were young men, but they, they had experienced things in Vietnam that that they was not, they were ill prepared for, if I could use that. I'm working on my own, so I've reached out to a friend of mine to act as kind of a sounding board. Ayana Contreras is a radio producer and author. We work together in Chicago. I've been checking in with her as the story comes together. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. I've put a lot of effort into digging out all the details of this story. It can make everything feel like finding buried treasure. Ion is a lot more skeptical, which is perfect. 
So as I go through this and look at what I've done so far, what, what do you think? What do you think of the story? Well, I mean, I think it's an interesting story. I definitely think it's a perspective that isn't heard enough. So from that standpoint, it's interesting. I mean, you know, when people learn about black history and learn about the civil rights era, a lot of people think that after the Civil Rights Act was passed, you know, we overcame. And that was sort of the end of people's struggles. But I think your story sort of blows that idea out of the water, right? Right, right. So if you were me, where do you, where do you go from here? We're just starting out here. They, they thought they were attacking a meeting of the Ku Klux Klan. And it turns out they got the wrong room. If you were me, what do you want to know from here? Hmm. I mean, the question is, was it worthwhile? Like, what what were the benefits of doing that in the first place? Knowing that they wound up, what whatever their intentions were, they wound up breaking into the wrong room, right? And there's repercussions attached to that. So it's like, was it worth it? That's the question, right? What do you think of Ricky McGilbrey? <laughs> I think ultimately... That's the one thing this story has going for it, right? Like, I mean, even if you might not be super interested in the overarching um, situation that was going on at the time on the at the camp, I mean, you can say that you've definitely got some characters, right? And he he is a very he's an open book. I I will say that Ricky McGilvery is an open book, um, but he's not really the classic kind of hero, is he? Right. I mean, I think that goes back to this idea that does a person have to be perfect in order to be somebody that you're rooting for? Or does a person have to be a quote-unquote hero in order to kind of be a positive force? Is Ricky McGilvery somebody that you know? Is, does, he, does he remind you of anybody? I mean, I guess maybe that's what it is. It's the normalcy of it. Like, he's not an extraordinary, once-in-a-lifetime guy. He's a guy you see, like, sitting at the bar who has lived a life that, you know, like a lot of folks have lived. He's that guy. He's, I think he's a guy that a lot of us know. In the months leading up to the incident, African Americans have had several run-ins with members of the Ku Klux Klan. There have been fights. One incident that keeps coming up in the court record happened in the mess hall. They allow some of them white guys to walk around with these big buck knives. They call those buck knives nigger stickers. And one incident happened in the cafeteria. One of the buck knives fell off one of the guy's hip. And his friend picked it up and said, hey man, you drop your nigger sticker, and you got a whole lot of brothers in there, and we're like, did he say nigger sticker? And, you know, and that just, you, that created an atmosphere that, 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 you know what, y'all gonna be this bold to be walking around here saying nigger stickers, and you got men, black men from Alabama, uh, uh, Arkansas, Texas, uh, from the south, from the deep south, Georgia, Florida, from the deep south, that, you know, this is the 70s, man. We ain't tolerating that. And at this time, uh, you had, you had progressive thinking black men. You had these uh, Vietnam veterans who had been in Vietnam and fought for this country 
in, in that sense, well, I'd be doggone if I done went and fought for my country and I come back and, and I'm still hearing the N-word. Oh, no. So that's that's what started this. this just the, those two words, nigger stickers. That's what started all of this. That That's what unleashed this whole theory of of anger out of the black community in on that base. Those two words. We'll go into more detail about what happened at Camp Pendleton, but for now, I want to skip ahead. This entire story hinges on the events that happened on the night of November 13, 1976. None of the things that happened at Camp Pendleton probably come out without this night, the night they decided to attack the Klan. I was able to get at least some of the court transcripts, and I've gone through the media accounts. I've talked to some of the lawyers involved. This is the best picture I can come up with of what went down on that Saturday evening in 1976. Ricky McGilvery says two sergeants called a meeting Saturday afternoon. It spread by word of mouth among African-American Marines who are a minority on this sprawling Marine base. Sergeant Herman Fletcher and Sergeant William Spencer are the oldest members of the group, in their mid-20s. It's Spencer's room. Younger African-Americans seem to gravitate to him. A group of about 20 people are huddled in this small barracks room. McGilvery and his friend Bobby Lee listen in from the back of the room. They're both forklift drivers. Neither are model Marines. They barely know most of the other Marines in the room, but the stories of racism and the KKK resonate with them. The meetings start with more general griping about Camp Pendleton and the problems with African Americans not receiving promotions. Then the discussion turns to the increasing number of incidents involving the Klan on base. Some of the Marines tell stories about being chased by white Marines with a pipe and harassed with a pellet gun. Someone's bunk was spray painted with KKK. One of them has been talking to someone who lives on the same floor as the Klansmen and gave them a room number. There are also posters in the area advertising a Klan meeting. There is a rumor swirling around that the Klan is planning to attack African-American Marines. The meeting breaks up, but they agree to come back for a second meeting after dark. In the meantime, McGilvery and Lee go out drinking in nearby Oceanside. So do some of the other Marines. By the second meeting, the group has thinned out. There are 14 Marines in the room. The barracks rooms are tiny and spartan. This is not the full room full of bunks like boot camp, more like college dorms. McGilvery says they listen to the older sergeants, Spencer and Fletcher. Let's just say Spencer was to speak at the house. Fletcher was the whip. And, and Spencer was the, the calm spirit. Uh, but Spencer pretty much called this last meeting. And so when we came together, he just let us know, brothers, this ain't no joke. And, if you, and, and he wouldn't use those words, you understand? Uh, we was Marines, so every five words were curse words. So uh, he, he just let us know, hey, man, this this is the real deal. We tired of these white boys walking around here talking about nigger stickers. And we're going to have to do something about it. And uh, you understand, if we keep our mouth closed, we'll be all right. But if we ever find, if they ever find out who's doing this, 
we're going to be in trouble. And our lives are going to be changed forever. Your lives going to be changed forever anyway because you're doing something that that's going to alter the course of history. And we and he actually told us that. We're about to alter the course of history. And you know, I'm I'm 19 now. 18, 19 now and like okay. There are clan flyers up on the wall in the place where they're headed. Barracks building 22212. Investigators also found stickers that say white man wake up on some of the doors. The African-American Marines suit up and head to the room that they've been told the clan is meeting. Room 360 on the third floor. Gloves, you know, hats, dark clothes, uh, nothing identifiable. Don't, don't put your uniform on with, with your name tag showing. That, that don't make any sense. And we went up to the third floor. Somehow we all came different directions. Because, of course, last thing you want to do is have 14 black men walking together, going to one direction on a Marine Corps base. That, that, so we came from all different directions. You come from this direction, and we're going to all meet up on this third floor. And when we got up on the third floor, uh, my Pentecostal upbringing kicked in and said, don't you go in that room. I just told Spencer to him, I said, I'll tell you what, man. And I said, I'll tell you what, guys, I'm going to wait. And I'm going to be here. And I'm going to look out for you. Y'all go on in there. They said, okay. You know, we're in the heat of the, we're in the, heat of the battle. So it ain't going to be no argument. You know, no, you're going to go. No, it wasn't no argument. Hey, man, okay. Watch out for it. We're going in there. So they went in there. I realized that this is not the way I was brought up go in there and do grievous bodily harm to anybody. Court records show at least one person had a weapon, maybe a screwdriver. Maybe another person has a parachute knife. Testimony about who's holding the weapons varies depending on whose court hearing it is. They assume the Klansmen are armed. When they get to the room, one of the African-American Marines knocks on the door and asks for Chuck, probably the name of one of the known Klansmen. Someone either says there is no Chuck here or doesn't understand the question. At this point, the African-American Marines charge into the room. McGilvery can't see it, but he can hear it. Screaming. I don't want to say screaming because these are men. These are Marines, but they were was, they was yelling. They were yelling and a lot of cursing and a lot of shut up. And yeah, uh, how you like that? You know, what you going to do about that? There's a lot of rumbling. And after that, they all came out and everybody went their own different way. We did not meet up. We did not meet up after that. Everybody went their own different way. So there it is. This is the incident that would eventually reveal that the Klan was in the Marine Corps. We should say at this point that no one in that room died that night, thankfully. The African-American Marines had burst into a room of Marines who were drinking beer. They were caught by surprise. All of the six injured Marines would recover by the time the Pendleton 14 came to trial. Coming up on the next episode of Free the Pendleton 14. The story doesn't come out right away though. The Marines' first impulse was to hide everything that was happening at Camp Pendleton, 